from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. This is Cheryl Kennedy at the Library of Congress. Late September will mark the 12th year that book lovers of all ages have gathered in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the written word at the Library of Congress National Book Festival. The festival, which is free and open to the public, will be two days this year, Saturday, September 22nd, from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m., and Sunday, September 23rd, from noon to 5.30 p.m. The festival will take place between 9th and 14th Streets on the National Mall, rain or shine. For more details, visit www.loc.gov bookfest. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Stephen L. Carter, who is a professor of law at Yale University, where he has taught for more than 30 years, and the author of five novels and seven acclaimed works of nonfiction. His latest novel is The Impeachment of Abraham Lincoln. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I appreciate it. Now, in your latest novel, you tackle the world of alternate or revisionist history. Your premise is certainly fascinating. President Lincoln survives the assassination attempt, but is facing impeachment for overstepping his constitutional authority during the Civil War. Now, I understand you're a Lincoln buff, and you've gathered, uh, and I gather you've read nearly everything that's been written about the 16th president of the United States. As an author of fiction and nonfiction, why did you take this approach? I should start by saying I'm an amateur Lincoln buff, and I don't think I've read everything uh, written about Lincoln. In fact, I saw recently read about 15,000 books about Lincoln. I've probably only read 100 or so, so I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit behind. But I'm a great <laughs> Lincoln fan, and I have wondered about what would have happened if Lincoln had survived, the way a lot of people have, uh, for a long time. I think the idea first came to me when I was in college, and once I became a novelist, probably from the time I wrote my first novel, there's been an itch in the back of my mind. Uh, what if I treated that in fiction? Wouldn't that be a great premise for what amounts to, I suppose, a courtroom thriller? And that's really how I come up with the idea. Now, your story is populated with real-life figures, but your central character is a fictional young black woman who finds herself immersed in intrigue and conspiracy on a national stage. Considering the racial climate of that time period, how did you make your character and the actions uh, believable? How did you stay true to the times? Because the title of my book is The Impeachment of Abraham Lincoln, I suppose most readers would expect Lincoln to be the main character. He actually only shows up in about six or seven scenes in the whole novel. There's a lot of Lincoln fiction over the years, and most fiction about Lincoln is told from the point of view of people very close to the seat of power. I wanted to tell the story from the point of view of an outsider, and I chose Abigail, who's a young black woman from the middle class, because she's about as far outside as you could get in Washington of the 1860s. Uh, she's black, as you say. She's a woman. Uh, she's a college graduate, which is very unusual for both a woman or a black woman in those days, but was possible. And she has ambitions to be a lawyer. This at a time when there were no female lawyers in America and probably half a dozen or so black lawyers uh, in America. But she's ambitious. She's upwardly mobile. She wants to make something of herself. And she faces a lot of obstacles, as might be predictable, but... Uh, in solving a mystery and helping the president, whom she so admires, she has to find ways to overcome the obstacles, obstacles posed by her race, as you say, by her gender, and other sorts of problems as well. Now, you write about an influential and affluent uh, black community. Why is that such a central theme in your books? 
I've always thought that one of the problems with both popular literature in America and popular culture generally is we tend to present a very one-dimensional view of the experience of African-Americans uh, in America. When I wrote some of my earlier novels about well-to-do black families of today and in recent history, already I had readers who simply thought that had to be fiction. It couldn't possibly be true. Now I'm inviting readers into the world of 1867, where I'm setting a thriller, to be sure, in the world of presidential politics, but also largely in a milieu populated uh, by black families who were middle class. Uh, middle class in those days probably didn't mean what it meant now. It basically meant you owned your own business or something like that. Of course, there were literally hundreds of thousands of free black people at the time of the Civil War, a fact that's easily forgotten, and Abigail was simply from one of those families, illustrating the lives of those families, trying to capture them, trying to honor them for their achievements in that era was part of what I was trying to do, although I have to say the book is mainly there to be fun to read. What are the writing challenges of merging fact with fiction, real-life figures with imaginary characters? In all of my novels, I tend to do an awful lot of research. I think that because I'm trained mainly as a scholar, I want to get as many facts right as possible. That's always challenging, but in this novel, it was a much greater challenge. I had to bring to life real historical figures. I had to put words in their mouths that were plausible words they could have said if they found themselves in those situations. And in addition to that, I had to bring to life Washington, D.C. of that time, which was in a sense the hardest challenge. I, I wanted to paint the city of Washington of 1867 the way the city really would have looked. Uh, Abigail in the story lives on 10th Street in a section of Washington in those days known as the island, now southwest Washington. Uh, and I wanted the view from her porch to be the view someone who lived on 10th Street would really have. I wanted the sounds of the city to be right. I wanted the smells of the city to be right. I worked enormously hard on the, on the research uh, for the background of the story. In fact, that's probably why it took me four or five years to write the novel, because of the amount, not because of constructing the story so much as because of doing the research, the amount of background that went into it, trying to capture what 1867 was like in Washington. What were your historical sources? The Library of Congress has uh, Lincoln's papers. Um, how much research did you do, and what were your sources? I can't possibly list all the sources uh, that I used. I did use heavily the Library of Congress's resources on Lincoln, not only as papers, but also um, photographs and various other things and various remembrances of other people as well. I used a lot of biographies. I used a lot of, of uh, histories. Uh, in fact, uh, the source that I found uh, that, that was most fascinating to me that I found was a report from the Provost Marshal General of the Union Army issued during the Civil War on the quality of different brothels in Washington, D.C. And since I needed a scene in a brothel, or really outside a brothel in Washington, I used that source to get it as accurate as, uh, uh, as possible. The, the thing is that there are more Lincoln sources and more Civil War sources than probably sources for any era in our history. It's not hard to find the sources. It's important when writing historical fiction to have the patience to listen to what the sources are teaching. That's the key. Now, as I mentioned, the Library of Congress has Lincoln's papers, his life, masks, and, and the actual items that were in his pockets at the time of his assassination. Did you know that Lincoln had a $5 Confederate note in his pocket at the time of his death? 
I've read something about that. I admit I didn't worry too much about the contents of his pocket. Uh, at the time, there were wonderful little details about uh, Lincoln's assassination and about the times around them. There were wonderful little uh, bits and pieces of things, not only in the Library of Congress, um, in the Museum of American History, and also in the Lincoln Museum out in Springfield, which I've also visited. Uh, and the marvelous thing about Lincoln is how excited we are to be able to touch and feel those little pieces of his life in a way that we don't seem to feel about any other president. His iconic presence in our history is probably the reason there are 15,000 books about, uh, about Lincoln. Now, you noted an upsurge of interest in Lincoln over the last few years, and with the marking of the 150th anniversary, obviously that will increase uh, interest in his presidency as well as the Civil War. What is it about Lincoln's legacy and the nation's greatest military and political upheaval that so intrigues filmmakers, writers, and readers? I think one of the things that happens is people look around the nation today and they see a nation that's divided, that's constantly yelling and screaming across the aisles. No one seems to be able to calm things down or bring people together. So they look back in history to a time when we were more divided, and naturally, by comparison, the people of that era look like giants. They look almost godlike, I think, in our imagination. Nations tend to look back when they're fractured, when they're under stress. That's a very common historical phenomenon, and we're no different from anyone else that way. But the truth is, although Lincoln is a fascinating individual, and he certainly deserves our admiration, and I'm happy to have written a novel about him, at the same time, the solution to our problems lies in the present and not in the past. As a sort of student of history, what observations have you made about the nation's contemporary uh, politics? <laughs> it's too early to tell. This is something I'm always telling people, uh, that, that it's very difficult to judge the historical significance of events when you're going through them. Uh, you have to have the advantage of looking back many, many years later. I often tease my students, uh, because of today's emphasis on quick answers to problems, the Pearl Harbor attack took place in 1941. The definitive report of what went wrong was published 20 years later. It didn't take 20 years because anybody was dawdling. It didn't take 20 years because there was no investigation. It didn't take 20 years because there was a cover-up. It took 20 years because events that go wrong on that scale are so enormously complex that tracking down exactly who should have and could have done what takes lots and lots of time. We live in an era today when people want instant answers. When there's a financial collapse, they want to know the next day who's to blame. This is silly. It's bad for our politics. Uh, the media has done us a great deal of damage by encouraging us to look for quick and easy answers when the real answers to deep problems are going to be enormously complex. You teach courses on law and religion, the ethics of war, professional responsibility, etc., which obviously has influenced your nonfiction works. But how has your career prepared you for writing fiction? I'm often asked not so much why I write fiction, because I don't know the answer to that, but why so many lawyers do. A lot of lawyers and law professors uh, end up writing fiction, uh, especially end up writing thrillers like I do. And I think there's a reason for that, that, that if you think about it, the, the thing that really bothers people about lawyers when you go to a lawyer for advice, you want to do something simple like write a will, and the lawyer immediately starts asking, have you thought about this, have you thought about that, have you thought about this, have you thought about that? It gets annoying. Lawyers are constantly thinking about, asking about, planning for contingencies that to everyone else 
seem horribly unlikely ever to take place. That's what lawyers do. That's what lawyers are trained from the first day of law school to do. Well, isn't that what a novel is? And especially, isn't that what a thriller is? You get to the end of one chapter, and the next chapter is, what if this happened? Something highly unlikely that the reader couldn't necessarily have guessed. That's what keeps people turning the pages. I think that's why so many lawyers uh, and law professors end up writing fiction. I think it's natural to us because of the focus on, what if this happened? What if this happened? What if this happened? Very interesting. Now, in developing your characters and plots, do you use real people in situations? Uh, can we find Stephen L. Carter somewhere in your storylines? I certainly believe that every author's views and experiences influence the story, but I really try hard not to model my characters closely on people I really know. It, now, whenever my friends read my novels, they're always pointing out themselves. They're always saying, oh, there I am. Oh, I see which character you modeled on me and so on. But that's really not what I, uh, what I try to do. Um, what I try to do is simply come up with characters who are interesting. In fact, when I write fiction, in almost every case, I have the characters before I have the story. You asked a few minutes ago about how I got the idea for the Lincoln novel. I should explain that the, the character who became Abigail Canner this woman in the 1860s who wanted to be a lawyer had been drifting around in my mind for a long time as someone I wanted to write a novel about before I hit on the idea of combining her with my interest in Lincoln. I get very involved in the lives of my characters in a sense. I worry about them. When they're hurt, I feel the pain. My wife could tell you that although I write both fiction and nonfiction, and I write much more nonfiction than fiction, Nevertheless, when I write fiction, it's e the experience is emotionally draining for me in a way that other sorts of writing are not. Well, I think your readers uh, feel that, which is why they love your works. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say. I have to, t to tell you that I think I had more fun writing the Lincoln novel than any of my other novels. I should explain that I often have fun when I'm writing fiction. I really enjoy it a lot. It's a break and a change what I spend most of my working time doing. Uh, but this one, although it was a lot of work, was really fun. Every page was a joy to write. And I think it's largely because of the work I had done to recreate the era in which the story is, is set. Now, the library's multi-year celebration of the book includes an exhibition examining books that shaped America. What book do you think most shaped the country? Most shaped America? Clearly the Bible is the book that most shaped the country. Uh, it's a book that's often used, often abused, uh, but certainly in terms of the influence it's had uh, on America's history, uh, there's really nothing else that's, uh, that's even close. But there are other books that are enormously influential. Uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin comes to mind, for example. Huckleberry Finn, certainly. Uh, I'm here speaking of, of fiction. There's certainly nonfiction as well. Well, there are a lot of books that have really worked revolutions in people's thinking, but I think it's fair to say none of them have been inf as influential as, as the Bible has been in American history and culture. Is there a book that most influenced you as a child or as an adult? I can't tell you what influenced me most as a child. I can tell you that my interest in Lincoln began because my father had Lincoln books on his bookshelf at home. And when I was a little boy, I used to take them down and 
it would be false to say I read them. I was a kid, but I read at them, as my father said. I used to pick pages and just look at them in, in fascination. And my interest in Lincoln, I remember very clearly beginning then, the truth is that I was influenced heavily by the entire shelf. Well, one wall of our home in Washington uh, was books. Uh, and just the experience of living with that wall every day probably did more than anything else to create my love of, my enormous love of books themselves, physical, actual books. We've been hearing from law professor and author Stephen L. Cotter, who will appear on Saturday, September 22nd, in the Fiction and Mystery Pavilion at the 2012 National Book Festival on the National Mall. Mr. Carter, thank you for an enlightening conversation. The pleasure's really mine. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you. Same here. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Goodbye. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.